Welcome to Have Hope Will Travel. I'm your host, Katie Axelson, and today I'm here with Ann Rulo. Ann, welcome to the show. Hi, Katie. I am thrilled to be here. So your passion is talking about faith and mental health, and your own story weaves into that. So I would love to hear a little bit about your story since you're a new friend for us. Yeah, um, it, it's an honor to be a new one on this. So um, a little bit about my background. I was raised in Kansas City, Missouri, and had kind of a storybook suburban upbringing. And when I was 16, um, my dad got cancer and passed away very, very, mm-hmm. very quickly. And um, that obviously rocked my world. So that left my mom mm-hmm. and my two sisters and I. Um, but we just, you know, we kind of continued on just, mm-hmm. you know, playing our sports and doing our thing and went off to college. And I kind of wandered through several um helping professions, right? I think I had seven mm-hmm. different majors, but they all landed under wow. teaching or nursing or counseling or something that helped people. And that has just, you know, always, that has, has been a standard. Even in high school, I was in some random group that was like a peer counseling group <laughs> for other sure. students, you know, that's kind of always been there. And um, my very first job that I got was actually counseling uh, youth who had been um, put in ho- in homes by the juvenile system. So either they had done a bunch of like little things, uh, you know, truancy, petty theft, that kind of thing, or had done some big things. Like I definitely counseled some people who had um, charges of sexual assault, um, even murder. I mean, it was, it was kind of ran the gamut. And, uh, out of that, um, I, I landed in counseling. That's where I finally landed. And so that's where I spent my, I spent my first seven years was in that job. And then I was actually at a college for another seven years in their wellness center, uh, counseling college students and just supporting them during those years in the middle of all that, uh, met my husband through an organization called young life. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. I am familiar. Mm -hmm. There you go. Um, and we were both young life leaders. And so we both loved high school kids and we both loved ministry and he decided to be a teacher and a coach. And I was a counselor and we got married and, um, we were in the middle of Missouri for a while and, a little stint in St. Louis, and now we're up in northern Missouri where he is a head football coach and a teacher, and that's kind of our our ministry as a family is uh, taking care of those kiddos, and we have two children ourselves. We've got a son who is eight and a half and a daughter who's four, mm. and so that's what we're doing, and then I, I, you know, I was a therapist for all those years, and then two years ago when we moved to this new location, I said I I. I want to reach more people. Like I loved doing counseling, but sometimes people would leave and I would think, gosh, that was a really powerful conversation. And one person Mm -hmm. heard it. Wow. (laughs) Sure. And I want, I want to be able to, to talk to more people and reach more people. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to be more open about my faith as well. Um, You can't, you know, as a therapist, you're not, you're not a pastor, you're a therapist, right? You're meeting people where they're at. And so your faith is not as much in that. And so I, t- I took the leap. Um, my husband was really supportive and said he didn't care if I made money anymore, which I really appreciate. Nice. And uh, 
So I've been chasing this writing and speaking thing and, you know, running a blog and wrote a couple books. And uh, so we're kind of seeing how that that goes. That's kind of been the adventure. And so because of my training as a therapist, it's given me this really unique space to be an expert in that. But Mm -hmm. then also as a believer, you know, I think sometimes churches get a bad rap for not attending to mental health issues very well. Yeah, for sure. Um, But I think that is not for, it's not because they don't care. It's sometimes because they haven't been trained. Like pastors aren't trained therapists, right? Right. Your deacons aren't trained therapists. And so if we don't have people who have that training speaking into, this is how it fits with the church and this is how we can be supportive of people with mental health concerns, Um, then we're just being critical without being helpful and proactive. Mm. And so I'm starting to try and uh, lean into that a little bit and offer help where I can suicide prevention training. Um, I suffered from postpartum depression myself. So I've spoken to some women's groups with things like that. I I mean, it's kind of, it really is honestly just kind of developing. I, I feel like the Lord has just kind of said, Hey, just, keep speaking, keep writing. I am going to organically develop this where, where I want you to serve. And so I'm honestly, I'm kind of, it's more, I'm kind of watching, like I'm working, Mm -hmm. but I'm kind of watching to see where he's, where he's leading all this. So that was a long answer. (laughs) That's okay. That's beautiful. And I think there is a lot of need for mental health resources in the church. What Mm -hmm. would you recommend a church do so that they can be stronger in that realm? So I think the thing with mental health is just saying, um, yeah, and this is, gosh, this goes with a lot of stuff. Just say what you don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Be okay with not having to feel like you have to be all things for all people. I think our spiritual leaders, our pastors sometimes feel that pressure, right? Like I, I'm leading this church or I've taken this position of, leadership in my church as the women's ministry person or a deacon or an elder or whatever it happens to be. And they feel this pressure to have answers. And I think it's okay to just say, I don't know. Let me ask somebody, right? Or here's what I've heard before, but I need to learn more. And I, I think that's, I think that's just a great human trait. I think God calls us to be humble and there are things about mental health and about plenty of other things that people could come and ask me sometimes. And I'm like, I'm going to have to think about that one, or I'm going to have to investigate that one. Like we just, we need to be okay with saying what we know and what we don't know. And then asking other people to step in. Um, And then as far as people who do have uh, mental health training, who are people of faith, be open to being that person if you're comfortable with it, you know, mm-hmm. let your folks know, like my church, because I can't, when I came here to this town that I live in now, I'm not a practicing therapist here. I'm staying home with my children and I'm writing and I'm speaking. No one would ever know. But then I went to um, the women's ministry person when I got here and I said, Hey, here's what I have to offer. Let me know where I can be helpful. And then I just let them kind of take the lead. And there's been times that they've reached out and asked questions. And so I think it's, it's being good stewards of our gifts, right? All of us have ways that we can serve and just kind of laying those out there and, and seeing what people need. Um, 
And I think there are more churches that are leaning into the conversations about mental health. They're speaking against some of the myths, right? Like (laughs) mental health is just like your physical health. Like sometimes our parts don't run and do what they're supposed to. And um, I think one of the biggest things, even if you don't know how to answer about the chemical or the biological things, you're not trained in it, is for our people of faith to say, this is not a failing. This is not a moral failing on your Mm, part that you're suffering from anxiety, depression, bipolar, whatever it is. I actually, um, uh, for my Instagram post for next week, the quote on it says, uh, the space between being a worrier and a warrior is closer than you think. I think people sometimes shame themselves Mm -hmm. with scripture, right? They look at things like that God asks us not to worry. And they think, well, if I ever worry, then that means that I'm not being faithful. But it also says Mm -hmm. to cast your worries upon him because he loves you. Like give as much credence to the fact that he knows you will worry sometimes and then give it to him, you know? And so I think just We've sometimes, as people who struggle with mental health or as people of faith, we've sometimes used scripture um, in a shameful way rather than a in a supportive way. And so, um, yeah, I feel a little bit rambly about it because I've not, I'm just now kind of stepping into it. Um, but I yeah. do, I feel God drawing me back towards my training in the work that I'm doing. Yeah, I think it's really powerful, actually. I was ministered to by some of the things you just said. So that was really helpful for me. Yeah. As someone who is a pastor, there are a lot of things in there that I was like, yeah, the church, the church is good. I'm not going to call the Lord's bride ugly, but there are things that the Lord, that the church can do better. And so thank you for calling out some of those things as well. And, And you're right. It is sometimes a stepping up of this is what I can offer and an awareness of this is what I can't do. Mm-hmm. How do you think losing your dad so young affected your career path? Oh, good question. It gave me a framework for grief, I think is probably the biggest one. So I come from a family full of medical people. My mom's a nurse, my aunt's a paramedic, my uncle's a doctor. And I was not raised in a family that was largely focused on faith. Like we didn't have a regular church that we went to. It was kind of a, um, like God was real, but in terms of like daily life, um, it wasn't there that much. And, but in terms of like our orientation to why bad things happen, I was always taught bad things happen because bad things happen. I didn't Mm. have a lot of why in my life. And so when my dad became ill, my mom's example to us that she set through that set of foundation that was already in place, you know, because we, we weren't ever taught that like death was a bad thing. It just was like everyone dies at some point. It just... That was just kind of the approach. The The way that she handled it, she was just, she grieved and she was sad that she was losing him. But I, I remember moments where, um, like right after he passed, you know, we're all standing in the room, we're all tearful, we're very sad. And she says, well, this wasn't what I planned, but this is our life now. Mm. And 
you know, the day we buried him, I remember being on the way home and she said, okay, I am not married anymore and Mm. I have to figure out how to move forward. Like, and she was not, it was not dismissive. She was very sad. She never felt like a victim of the circumstances. Like it would be very easy to feel that way. Like, holy cow, I lost my husband in my forties. I've got three girls to raise. Why me? Why this? And she just was never there. She was always forward looking. And um, it just, it gave me a framework for tragedy. It gave me a framework for grief. And so the majority of times that things have happened in my life, I've been able to say, "Ugh, this is awful. Mm -hmm. This is really hard. Where do we go from here? And it's just a very, um, very proactive approach has made me really resilient, um, has made me brave in the face of really hard things. Um, I think it's affected me as a therapist, you know, ways that I maybe guided other people to make sense and meaning of difficulty that they encountered. I think the other piece was that I've always loved just the process of self-awareness and, you know, losing your dad. I mean, I was always kind of an old soul. Then you lose your dad at 16 and you're like automatically 65, (laughs) you know, (laughs) in your spirit. And um, it just, it helped me lean further into my design in Christ. Like I, I love calling people into looking into why they think about things the way that they do, how they can be more self-aware, how they can be brave. Um, But I guess, oh gosh, I should back up. Like the biggest piece of losing my dad that aside from my mother kind of setting this framework even more firmly for our, for my life was that my dad's death um, is my testimony. I was not a person Mm -hmm. of faith and we were always, my sisters and I were always heavily involved in sports. And my dad was always very involved in sports uh, with us. And uh, my sisters were ran track, ran competitive track and they ran for a man named Johnny and, uh, my dad knew Johnny. And then when my dad got sick, we, I, somehow the conversation came up that Johnny was also a pastor and mm-hmm. my dad is a literal, uh, death, deathbed conversion. Um, wow. you know, and I didn't even know what that meant at the time. Right. Uh, I was at, I'm at the funeral and, you know, he's Johnny's preaching and, um, he said, you know, so Johnny is African-American um, and he, he always referred to us as uh, brother or sister, whoever. Right. He said, brother Roger mm-hmm. came to know the Lord the week before mm-hmm. he died. And he's asked me to take over as kind of this father figure for um, his daughters. And so he stepped in in that space. And um, at that point, we st- and I like I, like I said, I didn't know what that meant. I, I'm like, what has come to know Jesus? I don't even <laughs> even know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we buried my dad on the morning of July 6th. And that night I left for young life camp and that's where I came to know the Lord a week later. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to to even leave why in my head. It was so obvious to me, right. That, that, that had been a catalyst Mm -hmm. to that for me. And then started going to that church and, um, he has, I mean, I talked to him a couple days ago, so he has remained a father figure. He 
presided over our weddings. He's baptized our children. Mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. Um, that those people in that place have remained very special to me. So uh, that would be the other one. So, yeah, that's huge. So you started attending Johnny's church after your dad's passing, yep. correct? And sure. that is a predominantly African American church. Yes, it is. So we were there. I remember my dad being very ill. Like I have visual of him standing in the pews very ill a couple of times, Mm -hmm. but it was just a couple of times before he passed. And then that became our church after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we um, and yeah, largely African-American, some interracial couples, um, but yeah, largely African-American church. And then then our little white family that would show up every week. So what's it like being a white family in a predominantly African-American church? You know, um, it's interesting. So my upbringing and, you know, in the middle of Missouri is, was very white. I just Mm -hmm. didn't have many people of color in my life at all. And, um, so this was really my first experience of any, significance or duration with people of color. And, um, for me at the time, I don't know that I even thought about race that much. I just knew that my dad had trusted this man to shepherd us. And I think because they had watched, you know, my, my dad get sicker and sicker for those few weeks ahead of time. Um, it was just a very welcoming community. Like I just felt very loved every Mm -hmm. time that I was there, you know, Johnny had taken this on, but I think some of the congregation as well, like they knew, they knew how we had come to know him. They knew how we had come to be there and they knew that we were grieving deeply. And so it was just, it was a very warm place. It was a very loving place. It was sister Anne, how are you doing? You know, it was a culture mm-hmm. shock in several ways. Like, um, you know, I'd been in a handful of churches before that, but certainly not one that ever, you know, they talked during service and responded <laughs> to what Johnny sure. did, which seems totally normal to me now. But at the time I was like, oh, we're talking in church, right? <laughs> like, we're <laughs> the music was louder and, you know, it was just, it, I mean, just all the things that are beautiful about sure an African-American church that I have come to love. So, yeah, we're recording about a week before this episode is going to be released. So we know the world is changing very quickly right now. Mm. We don't have any idea what's coming in this week. So we're not going to be able to speak to that, obviously, because we can't predict the future. But as of right now, how has um, the framework of having been a white family in a predominantly African-American church with Mm -hmm. a African-American father figure changed your worldview as we look at George Floyd's murder and everything that's happening in the world right now? Right. Um, Great question. So I think a couple of things. Um, It gives me a personal touch point for one. You know, if I had not had that experience um, along with some of the um, African-American clients and supervisees that I've had when I've been a counselor, I would have no I would have no personal touch point as a white person because I live in such a white place. And so when things are happening, I I have people that I know and love that give me a direct tie to feelings. And so I, I would just, I would say that I'm just, I'm just cognizant that there are people that I've talked to that just 
by nature of where we live, just don't know many people of color. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the personal touch point. Um, one of the interesting things is that as I've reflected on learning, my most salient interactions with people of color have been with people who, if we're going to get academic about it for just a second, have worked very far and very hard on their racial identity development. Mm. And like, for example, Johnny loves being black. And he is a confident black man. And most of the people of color that I have either worked with or been around um, are really love that aspect of themselves. And so I didn't have an idea of how it would be a negative impact just because I hadn't learned that. And it wasn't until I started being a counselor and I heard a story of a young man who said, I wish I could just rip my skin off because I hate how it makes people interact with me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, whoa, I've never encountered anyone who hated their interaction with the world based Mm -hmm. on their skin color. Like that shifted things for me to realize that someone would have been treated so badly that it made that they felt in conflict with accepting versus not accepting who they were. And I remember that conversation breaking me. Um, And then the other piece is that just recently, you know, white culture is so individualistic and we tend to lean on, here's the individual experience I've had here. He's, you know, we say things like, I have black friends, right? <laughs> like we have these like mm-hmm. things that we say that are so individual and, and, out, and um, I have just started really leaning into an understanding of systemic racism. If I were to say that I'm not racist, you know, or the the things I was taught, um, I don't see color, right? Like these things are not valuable anymore, right? We need to think about them differently. And so I've started leaning into trying to understand better systemic racism. In what ways, in what ways am I biased just by nature of the environment that I live in? In what ways am I perpetuating inequality, even if I didn't realize I was doing it? Again, you know, goes back kind of to the beginning of our conversation, just the humility, the willingness to admit that I don't know. I, I'm in a, I feel like a really strong place of being consciously incompetent. There are just things that I, that I don't know and I need to learn. I'm actually in the middle of reading um, the book White Fragility right now, mm-hmm. which has been really, really eye-opening for me. And, you know, when we had talked before this podcast that we were going to talk about racial equality, I almost hesitated a a little bit because I don't think white voices are what we're needing to be hearing as much right right now. Right. Yep. Um, But in a place like where I live, I want to say that there's got to be white people that are going to at least start having the conversations because there's not a lot of diversity around and um, that it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to come to me, (laughs) even Mm -hmm. though I don't feel like I know exactly what I'm talking about. 
um, just inviting people into the conversation and being humble and saying, I'm listening and I'm learning. And so I think those are ways that it's really affected me. And just, I'm very grateful that I have Johnny and other people that, um, cause I, d- I don't want to just like so many of us make the mistake of finding your one black friend and asking them all the questions. Right. And, um, but because we've had such a long-standing relationship, he's very patient to answer some things on occasion. And I don't, I don't try to overly use that, but I think we just have to be willing to lean in and make mistakes. And I think, you know, even as mm-hmm. I am talking here and as I thought about doing this podcast, I was like, I'm going to say something that is completely a foot in the mouth, but I have to be willing to start having the conversations and inviting other people to have the conversations or we're not going to get better. We're not going to mm-hmm. move, move forward. We have to know that we're going to be ignorant and fumble it sometimes, but be willing to lean in anyhow. Yeah. That's why I think these conversations are so important. Even as we are mm-hmm. two white women sitting here having this conversation, I think that everyone <laughs> yeah. needs to be talking about it and our yeah. voices are not nearly as important as our friends of color. But to say that two white people can have this conversation, I think shows that other white people can have this conversation yes. with other white people. Yes, so I think it's exactly. a starting place. And I also love what you said about Johnny and the rest of your church family being a touch point, because that's a beautiful word. And that's exactly what Have Hope Will Travel is all about. It's about getting to know people whose stories are a little bit different than ours so that we mm-hmm. have that touch point so that the world gets to be a little bit smaller because we understand a little bit better. So yeah. thank you for taking us in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. So we've covered a lot of topics today and you're welcome to uh, stay in one of those or interpret this as ever, however you wish. What do you wish everyone knew? What do I wish everyone knew? That you were designed by God for a specific purpose and you will miss it if you're not willing to be brave and vulnerable and dive in and figure out who that is. Mm. The enemy wants to distract us and we are too precious to God and his work and his people for the enemy to leave us alone. It requires a lot of hard work to really start to figure out who you are. You know, I feel like I had a call on my life to write and to reach people in this way for 15 years before I did anything with it. And I mean, I can actively remember being like, nope, 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 (laughs) you know, and God used it and God blessed it. And I think even in our diversions from what he asks us to do, he can still find ways to tie it all back together beautifully. Like those years I spent as a therapist are not wasted. He's now just Mm -hmm. finding a way for it to be used in this different capacity. And, you know, I think sometimes people don't want to lean into ways that God is asking them to step out of their comfort zone um, because it's uncomfortable and because it's like, well, so what were these other years? And so we struggle against regret or we struggle against maybe feeling like we wasted time or feeling shameful. Like I could spend a lot of time feeling shameful about not being obedient in these things, but I just shame and regret do us no good. They do us no good whatsoever 
And I mean, you're hearing my mom come out and me so much like, hey, step forward here, right? Start new here, move forward bravely here. And um, so I think, I think that would be the thing that, that we are all, we all have our unique design that it's not just about us. That design is mm-hmm. because we're supposed to be serving other people with it. So not in a guilt way, but like, don't miss out on doing what God called you to do because then other people are missing out. You know, when I worried about writing a book, I felt like he was so direct with me. Like, this isn't about you. It's about the people I want to reach with the words you're going to say. And so, you know, I kind of had to wrestle through that. And so I would say, pursue who you are and then don't do it alone. Like Mm. you've got to find the people who speak bravery into your life. I'm married to an exceptionally brave man and any, I think I could take him almost any wild and crazy idea. And he would say, Hey, if God's calling you into it, go girl, go. Like he's just beautiful. He's very brave himself, but he's also very empowering of other people. One of his greatest gifts is being a visionary. And so if you are leaning into whatever God's called you to be or do, you are going to fail sometimes and you are going to feel really inadequate. Sometimes you're going to feel like quitting. Um, you're going to feel a lot of that stuff. And if you don't have people to speak bravery as you're pursuing your call, it's going to be hard to make it. Like I've, I've mm-hmm. wanted to jump ship many, many, many times. And thankfully, I've had many people that are like, my husband in particular, who are like, no, <laughs> mm-hmm. stay put, stay the course. You know, you need those people. So chase your design. Yeah. Don't do it alone. That would be the short yeah. version of it. That's good. I'm glad that you haven't jumped ship because I think you've got such a beautiful, peaceful presence that I think the world needs. So where can we find you online if we want to be your friends? Yeah, great question. Okay, so um, I am in multiple places. So I have a website where there's lots of information. There's also a blog that is consistent, and that is www. Dot Rulo, so A-N-N-E-R-U-L-O.com. And then I am on um, Facebook, like with a professional page, and then Instagram and Twitter very recently. And all of those handles are at Ann, A-N-N-E-M, as in Mary, Rulo, Ann M. Rulo. And so that's Perfect. the handle for all of those. Wonderful. And we will link to those in the show notes as well. Okay, great. Thank you. Before we go, Anne, would you be willing to pray for us? Heck yes, absolutely. I can do that. Uh, Lord, thank you for Katie. Um, Thank you for her being obedient to this. I just think it's the cutest title ever to have hope will travel and um, that she's reaching out to people with unique stories and with unique experiences and that father pray you would use her ministry that you would reach people with the stories that you are sharing through the people that she's talking to um, through her own experience i pray um, that you would bless her and i pray father most of all that through people that are listening to what we have talked through today, that we would be brave, 
you call us things like soldiers and um, you equip us. And I pray that we would be authentic and vulnerable and willing to step into our design so that we can serve you ourselves and know you really deeply, know ourselves really deeply. But most of all, fathers, we can do your work so we can reach your people. You have so many of your children out there who need your other children to love them and to lean into their gifting so that they can um, be blessed. And I pray that we would follow through in that, be your hands and feet and, uh, just be blessed by you as we do the work you've designed us to. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It has been great to get to sit with you and to learn and to listen and to move forward from here. So thank you for the beautiful challenges that you've led on the table for us and for the chance to get to hear what the Lord is doing in and through you. Yep. Thank you so much, Katie. I know that I was blessed by my time with Anne, and I hope that you were as well. Make sure to connect with her on all the social media sites. The links are in the show notes. While you're there, let's connect as well. I'm at Katie Axelson. Be brave, my friends. Know that you are loved and continue to pursue the calling the Lord has placed in front of you. We'll see you in two weeks.